admitting this, which is hard to do because I want to say we do no tempo, but usually about a week before our first lactate workout, we do like six half laps on our 178 meter track. And I said, look like you're sprinting, but don't sprint. <laughs> that's tempo. Don't, yeah, just kidding. <laughs> I know that's, te- I just don't say the T word. That was Tony Holler. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online sports technology store that curates the best of in various elements of training, such as timing systems with the free lap timing system, training tools with things such as blood flow restriction training and the K-Box, athlete monitoring devices such as velocity-based training, force plates and the VO2 master, and much more. I choose sponsors for this show that I use their products personally. And I have been loving using blood flow restriction training this past year. The free lap timing system has been an absolute staple for me. I've really enjoyed using bar speed tracking and the K-Box. Those and other products in their store have been a really valuable part of not just my coaching journey, but also my journey as an athlete. They have as well an amazing blog on sports performance and are a top-notch company with great customer service. Be sure to check them out, and you can do that at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Great to have you here. Our guest today is none other than Coach Tony Holler. Tony has been coaching as long as I've been alive, 39 years. In addition to being the head boys track and field coach at Plainfield North High School, Tony also has plenty of experience in that 39-year career with football and basketball. Tony is one half, or he is the co-founder of the Track Football Consortium alongside Chris Corfist, and he is the creator of the Feed the Cats training system. I've had two episodes with Tony Pryor talking about some more of the nuts and bolts of the Feed the Cat system. I'd imagine many of you listening are already very familiar with that system, but in a nutshell, it is speed training essentialism. It's timing fly 10s and 40-yard dashes, rank record publishing the results, taking a minimalist approach to conditioning and lactate training in the scope of training the 400 for the example, and it's letting sport itself be conditioning. Sometimes it's hard to understand the base of speed training itself until you take that minimalist essentialist approach, and Tony has done that in spades. For today's show, Tony will go in detail on his evolution in the Feed the Cat system, talking about some of the workouts that existed before that year 2000 mark, before he went into that essentialist level of things. And he'll be also speaking on the pre-2008 period. So before he started using laser timing systems and the free lap timing system, how he was training and adhering to Feed the Cats. Then we'll be also talking about how Feed the Cats is working into team sport training and conditioning. We'll get a little bit more into Tony's speed training culture. And we'll be finishing the show speaking on the art of surrender in goal setting and really sticking to the process goals. Tony will be talking about his X-Factor workouts and a whole lot more. This conversation took almost two hours, and it absolutely flew by. I couldn't believe how long it had been when I actually pushed the record button to end it, but Tony is such an incredible storyteller. There's something in here for everybody, whether you're a track coach, a team sport coach, a strength coach, or you're just interested in the process of speed training. Let's get to episode 336 with coach Tony Holler. Tony, it's been too long, man. I'm so happy to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I think it's my third time. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, it's, I always have to go back and look at all the old questions to make sure I don't double cover. And since it's been probably at least three years, I think I was like, oh, I'll probably ask you something again, but maybe something's changed. But I want to go way back for the first question, which is pre 2000, because I know you talk a lot about that split. Like it was a big split, big split, pre 2000. And I'm curious, maybe for you personally, like what are some workout, like what's the worst workout that you gave your athletes way back in the day before Feed the Cats? You're like, oh, I wish I could take that back. I wish I wouldn't have them do that. Like that kind of thing. Any any memories of, of back then? Yes. Uh, matter of fact, with, with my writing of a book right now, I've had to revisit my evolution and I've had to revisit all my awful memories, embarrassing <laughs> things. I feel very vulnerable in the last couple of years with my writing, but I remember in, it was around 97 or 98, right before the split, I went to a clinic and I hadn't been to many clinics. And I saw a guy from Bradley University deliver a clinic on run slow to get fast. And it was like, it kind of stuck with me, you know, and it's like, yeah. And then I started reading about this dude named Clyde Hart and all that stuff. So I started in like early January and every Monday we we're going to do this workout where we were going to run three miles of intervals. And on the first Monday we ran 48 100s with one minute rest. <laughs> Guys did not have to complete the workout. They could, they could say no mas at any time. And I would have the entire group clap for them as kind of a, you know, good job. Maybe you'll be better next week. And um, our pace had to be whatever our goal mile pace was. So let's say a 520, every 100 had to be in under 20 seconds. And I would send them home if they're starting to run 22s or 23s. So the next week we did 24 200s with three minutes rest, and they all had to be in 40. And then the next week, same thing, but two minutes rest, same thing, one minute rest. And then in the fifth week, we ran 12 400s. Once again, the same pace. It would be, what, a, a, a 80-second 400 pace. We did 12 of them with a three-minute rest. Then we reduced it to two minutes, then one minute. So seven consecutive weeks on Mondays of running three miles of intervals at mile pace. And we really developed really good 800 guys that year. And amazingly, we were still pretty good in the sprint relays because they were basketball players and they didn't have to go through that crap. So looking back, I'm like, I'm embarrassed. You know, like, how did we not get people hurt? And I think the key was that maybe somebody did like 1900s on that first day and they said, okay, I'm done. So, so maybe we never pushed them past their limit, but let's just say that if I heard of some coach doing that now. I could not support that coach. Yeah, it is interesting. And for you, having all, it's just so interesting. There's that 2000 split where there's all the experience after, all the experience before. And you think about the kids that did survive it before. Like, like what was special about that kid? Like, I've done shows about some high-volume training and these people who do survive it, who do have that thing. Or like Karsten Warholm in the 400. I've heard his workouts like insane volume, but it's only been a couple athletes that coaches actually put out that survived that volume and then became champions. And it is interesting. I, do you ever think about that? Like what that person had that allowed them to survive those workouts? Or maybe it's like a problem solving. Like the athlete kind of figures out, okay, if I run this one, this, be, you know what I'm saying? I'm sure there's a lot of athlete problem solving that goes on there too. Yes. And survivorship bias, I think is, is something we all need to look at. 
I remember thinking when I was very young and Jim Ryan was the a hero, people forget how big track and field was in the 60s. It was a real sport. You know, now it's like an orphan sport. But Jim Ryan, if you look at his workouts, it, it was almost like fiction. It, they were so ridiculous. <laughs> and I was thinking, man, it's really pretty easy to train a great miler. You just look at what the great milers did and do that. And then you realize when you get a little smarter that maybe one out of a hundred guys who were, you know, had some talent would survive what he did. And I think that we see that in college track and field today. I think the rate of people dropping out of college track or that never reached their high school PRs, I think the number is alarmingly high, but we don't see those kids. We see the survivors that make it to the NCAA championship. And then we based our training on the survivors. Yeah, I, I do think it's always interesting to look at that in the sense that I was just, um, the podcast I did with Jared Burton recently, we're talking about, yeah, the high volume, people who can tolerate, what is it about people who can tolerate high volume? And something I, or some things I said that were based off, I read um, Pat Connolly's book on training Evelyn Ashford, so in the 80s, who beat, um, I think it was Marles Gore, you know, the, these Germans were all doped up and Evelyn beat Marles Gore clean, ran like 10-7 or something, which at the time was just like lightning. But some of these workouts that Connolly had her, and now I don't know how much like lactate stuff, but there was like some workout that was like a hundred hundreds, like a shakeup. I think it was, I had to be tempo pace, a hundred percent, but it was like a, a, I think the shakeup was like a straight arm squatty run type thing from trying to read and understand it. So sometimes it's almost like it's funny to see like people like numerical stuff too, like a hundred hundreds. There's something numerically about that. I worked yeah. with the water polo team that. They had their team do a hundred hundreds in the water every now and then, which I think it took them like four hours. But even, you know, you talk about the two hundreds and it's like, you know, it's like, it's funny. It goes like in multiples of four almost. It's like you did eight, you did 12, you did 16, 24. I'm like, I don't know why that takes off. It does. But anyways, all that to say is Evelyn, in looking at that, I don't know if she could have ran too much faster on a different system because at the time that was lightning, but she was hurt. Like she had a lot of hamstring stuff. And so yeah. you would think, well, you know, maybe there is something that could have kept her healthier and then she would have been more consistent or, you know, I don't know. But it's like even in that survivor, there's, you know, maybe there's more injuries than you could, you would have needed. Right. And I know and obviously you've had a great injury history since you switched over and that being one of the things as well. Yeah. And I always say never base your training on freaks and unicorns. And so basically, if, if you're training your kids like Houston trains their sprinters that made it to the NCAAs. Those are freaks. And I, I often say too, that the most elite athletes are almost, almost coach proof that there's been some horrible coaches coach elite athletes. And those elite athletes survive the training because they're freaky weird. But, you know, I, I think as high school coaches, we're forced to really look at the fact that we're coaching the group. And unlike a college coach, I can't lose two of my best five guys. I, I can't lose anybody. And and so every single kid that quits or gets injured has a huge impact on me. And I don't think it has a huge impact on college coaches. Yeah, and I, I can definitely see that. You know, as I, I had this question for you buried later in the show, but I'll I'll bring it up to the top now because it's something that I've thought about. It's almost like the, the feed the cat system. And hopefully everyone who's listening has has heard of that, is familiar with it. I'll, I'll probably in the 
preceding pre-roll. I'll, I, I, you know, I, you've mentioned enough. I don't think we need to go over it again. But to me, it almost strikes it as this is like base one. Like this is the starting point. And if you can do more, you could go out from there. You know, once you get to college, maybe. And I was going to ask you about that. And, and this is something that I feel like I'm curious is that I feel like a lot of high school sprint coaches will unload everything and then be, then the kid goes to college and gets worse. And like, oh, look, they got worse. And But I thought, and yeah, I mean, there's plenty of college coaches that are not doing very quality work or too much work or whatever. But it strikes me that a low volume sprint program in high school is actually, that is based off of pure human principles of dopamine, racing, that it almost would perhaps give more room for like a reasonable college program. You know what I'm saying? Like a college program, we're going to do some tempo, maybe some more lactate, blah, 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 but it's still reasonable. What's your thought on that on how Feed the Cats athletes have done at the next level with that more reasonable base? I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, Paul Souza, I really don't know if I've ever had any mentors in the track and field world and several in the basketball world, but Paul Souza coached at Wheaton College and was a amazing, amazing coach. And I remember I saw him at a clinic. And one of the reasons why I flipped the switch in around 1999, I remember he said one time, uh, guys, don't do everything. Leave some stuff for us to do. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it kind of speaks to your point. And, and I believe that to be true, that if we develop speed, if we develop coordination and rhythm and our kids love the sport of track, we are serving them well for the future. Now, having said that, nine out of every 10 kids I send to the college level go through damn near cross-country-like training really? in the <laughs> fall and damn near powerlifting levels in the weight room. Mm-hmm. And when I ask college coaches, why? Why do you drift from performance for three months? They said, we're trying to increase the capacity to do the work we need to do in the spring. I said, so So you're working all fall in order to practice for two hours in the spring? And they said, yeah. And I'm like, why would you practice two hours in the spring? So it's a different way of looking at things. So I think I'm serving them well. I, I know it works at the high school level, but I will tell you this, that Feed the Cats athletes do not adapt well to the other way of training. Uh, I, I got when you. They go so, on. so if it goes so to be unreasonable, if they go to an unreasonable program, then it just doesn't. And I could see that. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I'd love to say you, oh, they just thrive, <laughs> you know, but one of my least favorite days of the, the year is the signing day at our high school mm. where we celebrate kids getting to the next level. Like that is the goal of a high school program. Are you kidding me? It's, it's to win money. You know, I believe that sports are educational. I believe in the multi-sport concept. I believe that freshman performance is just as important as varsity performance. So I believe that sports are valuable in and of itself in high school. That is not just a stepping stone to the next level. If I believe that, maybe I would abandon all of my great stuff and just work my kids to death to prepare them better for the college <laughs> level. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Because, I mean, you have to do it how it should be. And I guess I was saying that partly, I, and I just had two of your former sprinters are in my knowledge banks. Is Marcellus, I think, is running pretty darn close to 10 flat at Texas. I'm sure they have a reasonable program there, <laughs> you know. And yeah. was it Kamari? You didn't coach him, but he was a Feed the Cats guy. Kamari yes. right, went like 46, but then went 44. 
I think about people who, I mean, it's easy in cross country, right? Like if you did 100 mile weeks in high school, you don't have a lot left. In the swim community, it was pretty well known. If you came from this club, well, you just have to go to this high volume college program or, you know, it's just like, where are you going to go from here is a big thing. If you, if you, Natalia Verkashansky and Jeff Moyer talks about this a lot. Once you pass this threshold, you kind of, it's hard to go back. And so I guess from the perspective of just volume and dosage, I, I would think if I was a college coach, I would love to have a Feed the Cats kid come up because, all right, maybe I am going to throw a little more lactate on them or something, you know, but I think they'd be ready. If it's reasonable, I think they would be ready to adapt to that as long as I'm not being, you know, silly with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah Marcel's so. ran 9.99 last year, wind aided. Uh, he's at Texas and they're a great program. I did see that he tweeted out a picture of him squatting a gazillion pounds <laughs> and i'm thinking what in the hell are they thinking but that's just me but you're right kamari montgomery was a national champ and ncaa champ 100 percent feed the cats his biggest workout was four 200s that was his biggest workout in high school and he ran 46 low which means he's going to run 44 low in college kenny benaric is you know a phenom an absolute phenom silver medalist he was a Feed the Cats guy from Rice Lake, Wisconsin. Joseph Fombele, a phenom from yeah. the University of Florida. He was a 100% Feed the Cats guy from Hopkins, Minnesota. Who uh, Hopkins, Minnesota <laughs> actually brought seven coaches down to a track football consortium. Really? When he was only a sophomore. So they went all in with Feed the Cats. So when pe- people say that, even though I'm not saying that all Feed the Cats athletes adapt well to college. To say that they are ruined by a feed the cats system, I think is the opposite of the truth. I, I think that that's the way I would train an elite athlete or a generic athlete, either one. Either, either way, yeah. I think is really good. Yeah, it makes really good sense to me if we were looking at, pro- and I think that's just something we don't have as a whole community is this thought of progression. It's more like, I don't know, what can I, I mean, and again, I feed the cats is going to be phenomenal program is going to be phenomenal for a high school sprinter. But just the way I see it, it's also going to be phenomenal. If I was to plan the next level, you know, I think it would be a really phenomenal gateway versus just like just smashing them with temp, you know, or or too much lactate early on. There was some comments, I think, throughout your material, people talking about like not giving like a, a freshman too much lactate, just period, stuff like that. Like, and being in the club track space, I mean, I saw. I saw like seventh and eighth graders getting smashed with tempo. And I was even in preparing this, I'm actually like starting to look at long-term trends. How did they do through high school? And I don't think many people look at that. Like, like how did they do, how did this kid who was trained here do afterwards with respect to that kind of training they were doing at the time? I, I just think long-term development is one of those things that it's a little more long drawn out. It's not as here now, but it's really important. I think in the whole conversation of it all. Because speed grows like a tree. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one of my, go-to slogans. And so you have to play the long game. And the only way you play the long game successfully is if kids love what they do. Because when they love what they do, they're willing to suffer through the hard things. I mean, people that don't love something, they will go around the hard things. They'll cheat the hard things. But when you, that's why my guys under-trained in the 400 run the 400 well, because they love track and they love the team and and then they revere the four by four. So those things go a long way. And the the missing thing, it's weird when Marcellus, even though he was an elite of elites, I only got one call from a college coach. One. 
I mean, they must have recruited him through his dad or through his AAU coach or something. But I, there was no connection. And so if we're going to continue that long-term success, maybe there needs to be better bridges between mm-hmm. high school and college. Maybe freshmen in college, especially from a Feed the Cats program, should not be prescribed the same workouts as their seniors. You know, let them grow capacity organically instead of forcing it on them. Yeah. One of the things that's near and dear to my heart, and you talk about this in preparing for this interview, I, I heard you talking about this with the state meet, like the back-to-back days, like how do you train for that? Or like training for the four by four? Because I, I mean, I was a basketball guy in high school and then I did track in the spring. And I just did the four, I didn't run the open four. I just did the four by four because the team needed me to do it. And I wasn't yep. even that fast. But it was kind of like the heart and it was the environment. And then I look at Feed the Cats and I think about this a lot is I think so it's so easy to just get buried in, I would call it like the base layer of, we could just call it like physics. And then I sent an email out with this type of thing is the base layer is physics. So it's like the mechanics, the workout X's and O's. And then the next layer that not as many people pay attention to, but the next layer of depth is biology. And then the next layer is psychology. You have even less people paying attention, but I just look at Feed the Cats just checking off those boxes in spades of the psychology and especially too, well, how do you train for this meet? Well, you aren't factoring in. There is the energy of the meat. There's this psychology that comes with running the four by four. There's the psychology of the energy of the state meet that, yeah, it's only once a year, but that's part of it. Like, and yeah, if it was a back-to-back dual meet, it might be different, but this is the state meet, you know? And I've been through, I saw this in swimming, I feel like almost more than anything is athletes who, there was like their senior year and they're getting ready for their last meet. And I would literally see something turn in them mentally that they just start adapting better going into that final senior meet. And I'm like, you can't deny there's something psychological going on here that is in addition to all the, obviously the base of good training practice. Yes, the physics and the biology. But if we ignore the psychology of some of these things, I think that we also, we don't get the whole story. Yeah. And, and uh, what popped in my head when you're talking about that is I talk a lot about intuitive versus counterintuitive. And intuitive things are oftentimes wrong. It's kind of like a weird paradox. You know, like, My dad used to say, we're going to make practices so hard, basketball coach, (laughs) so hard the games are easy. That's intuitively brilliant. The problem is it's wrong that we want games to be the hardest thing we do. I've heard coaches say that we need to have back-to-back really hard workouts to prepare for that two-day state meet. We have to be able to get them through the rounds. And, and, And I'm like, okay, this is what I did for a couple of years. I scheduled a couple Friday night, Saturday morning meets, and I witnessed firsthand that they were train wrecks. They were absolutely counterproductive. Kids got hurt. They hated it. They, we performed horribly. It was more than diminishing returns. It was a train wreck. And so we don't do that anymore. Instead, we go to the state meet and we compete on Friday, and then we let the magic of the finals mm-hmm. carry us through the finals. When we had a great meet in 2018, when we won all four, four by one, four by 200 and 200, we had to do all those things on Friday. We ran better times on Saturday, though, without any training at all to do that. So that's counterintuitive. Intuitive was let's schedule some back-to-back meets so that we get used to a back-to-back meet. Counterintuitive is no, we don't have to do that. And so uh, I, I think, you know, as I get older, I understand that the obvious is sometimes the wrong answer. Yeah, it is. 
It is interesting to think about that. I, I was going to say as well with the running, run, running the four by four. I ran a better four by four split in high school when I was just doing. I didn't train for the four hundred. I just did basketball and kind of rode basketball into track season. And actually, I think I will say my four hundred got slightly worse right at the end because I wasn't doing. I wasn't doing much anything for the four hundred at all. No lactate at all. Just running in the meets, you know and. But I but then I got to college the next year and trained dist like it wasn't Clyde Hart level, but it was a lot. And I got like three seconds worse. My time was three seconds worse and the coaches never had me run it again. And I, I think I was the type of cat that needed like Bill Boomer said, he's like, some cats need skill. Like they need like they need a lot of challenges skill wise. And I was like, oh, and and shot off my brain too, like just to, <laughs> so I needed that very badly. And and yeah, I didn't train for it in high school, but ran faster than when I trained for it somewhat in college, which I found humorous. Your story is very common. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah, it's that, that was something that really did intrigue me for a little bit, but the more I've, I've heard of your work, the more it's it made sense to me over time. I, you know, something I, I wanted to ask as well with back to those like old school, early workouts, pre 2000, I'm curious. Cause I didn't realize this at first is that you didn't start timing. Like you, I don't think you got a Brower till 2008, I was curious what those early iterations, okay, without a timing system, like when I think of feed the cats, I think of timing systems. So what did, what did 2000 to 2008 look like? Like, so, and maybe what was that first year? Like what did, what were the workouts like that first year in 2000? Well, first of all, in 2008 was the first time I've ever heard of a 10 meter fly. I went to a Chris Corfist. I didn't know who the guy was. I just know, knew that the assistant coach at a, Mecca of distance running, York High School in Illinois, Joe Newton, wrote books about cross country. He had like 20 state championships. All of a sudden, they started running great four by ones at York. And, you know, if you see a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there by accident. And so I had to go see this guy named Chris Corfist. And he's the weirdest guy I've ever seen speak. And I just was leaned into every word. And, you know, the rest, the next 14 years is history. We are now forever associated with each other. But he had a Brower timing system that had a CPU or whatever the central unit was called Summit. It was a, a skiing thing from a guy named Ernie Pyle out in Utah or something. I mean, I bought it two days later. I mean, I had to have it. So what was I doing in 99? Well, I timed with a stopwatch and we did 40s. What the early days of Feed the Cats looked like was an NFL combine training system where I immediately latched on to the idea that testing is training and training is testing. So we measured things. And so I would time solo 40s and four hurdle marks, boys hurdle marks on the track. And even though we were training in Southern Illinois, temperatures sometimes got down the upper 30s. You know, it was pretty cold. And guy would still strip off. They would strip off their shirt. They would take their sweats off. I mean, they would have run naked if they had to because they were facing <laughs> times. And they realized that they were slower with big hoodies and things like that. And so what we would do is we'd run three. Now, sometimes kids would run four or five. I don't care. But, you know, that's basically we'd run three. And I would average the best two times since it was handheld. And that's the time I would record, rank, and publish. It was the earliest day. It was the earliest days of, I can't remember if it was called spreadsheets back then. It seemed like it was like data processing or something, who knows. But I was able to record, rank, and publish. I printed it. I taped it with white 
athletic tape to particle board walls in an old rusty weight room next to our track where we lifted. And so that's what we did. And so much of, I mean, it was totally that NFL combine type training. And I had a side motive. And that is if my sprint program became 40s based, previous to that was 400 based. Now it was 40 based. If it became 40, I would get every single wide receiver, defensive back, running back, maybe even some linemen come out for my team because of the connection mm. with football. That was a huge part of the early days. So basically, I was selling out in order to out-athlete the competition. I was willing to undertrain my guys in order to out-athlete. I always said that every school has a great track team. They're just not out for track. And the reason for that is because stupid track coaches run them off. I mean, the first day they talk about two hours of rules and regulations. And the second day they run 4,800s like I used to. And so what I found through the recording of times is that the average kids, the kids that were not my special recruits, the average kids actually improved more than my best athletes. But once the season got there, my best athletes performed really well in every sprint-based event, including the 300 hurdles, where I had three state champions, mm. including the 4 by 4 including the 400, and obviously including the field events. So what I thought was a sellout and undertraining situation, actually, I learned was a fantastic way to train. And I don't even think I said feed the cats back then, even though Paul Souza in 1999, that guy I was talking about, actually said, when you get on the bus, the track bus, it's an interesting bus. You got the the big throwers, you got the, the distance nerds, and then you got the cats. And I'll never forget that, thinking, damn, we need to feed those cats. <laughs> I thought that. I don't think I said it much, but, you know, like if you asked one of my guys from 1999, was coach always talking feed the cats? They'd say, no, we never heard that. But I think in my mind, it's, you know, the seed started to grow. And so that's what we did. So we just did 40s. And if you think about it, the 40, I think, is a perfect metric. It's half acceleration, half top speed. Pretty good stuff. Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse. It is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula. And you can get that for free along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. 
Yeah, it's it's like the full spec. You know, you get you get the force at the beginning, and you move up to top end. You kind of have a little bit of a flying tenon there at the end, or a flying tenon. So it's. I was thinking as you were saying too. I had another question. Well, I'll save this towards the mile power. I have a mile power gun okay. question there. Yeah, with yeah. The messaging, but and the forty, I'll loop it in there. But as you're talking about that, I just did a podcast with Christian Thibodeau, and Christian was on Pat Davidson podcast, and they Pat Davidson's podcast, and they were talking all about sensitivity. And, and so a Pat on that podcast and. This is something that I think just Pat put it into words really well. He was talking about before he started a new training block, he would, in the one preceding it, make sure that that was like a low volume enough block so that the athlete would be fully sensitized for the big stimulus. I hope that makes sense. Pat said it way better. (laughs) Anyways, to me, it's like, okay, the typical approach, hey, we got track season, you know, starting in March, April. So we're going to get ready for it by almost oversensitizing you, if that makes sense. You're going to be so oversensitized to running with all this tempo and all this speed. Desensitized. Yes, or desensitized. Yeah, that's what I meant. You're so desensitized that track is, yes, you're ready for it. But in, on, the lo- on the level of, yes, you've done the physiological systems have gone through the machinery or whatever. But on the, the mental level, like that level of, okay, now we're running fast, it just makes me think about, hey, if we're just going to train with just pure speed in 40s and not really speed endurance then by the time you do get to that speed endurance, you are so ready for that stimulus. You are so ready to adapt to it for whatever window that is. And that was just kind of, you know, that that hit me in spades as you were talking about that. I think I might have been thinking about it as you were, you know, listening to some of your stuff and getting ready for this. But I just think people don't think about, I I think the trend is always to do way too much for through the whole year and never really let an athlete desensitize from stuff so they can resensitize later. And usually injury does that for people magically. They get hurt. They come back and they're running way faster because now they're like ready to adapt again. And so I think that so often it's just funny how people don't really think about that, that type of sensitivity. And so I think that's a great way to look at it. I, I think to the fact that the majority of high school track teams are coached by very good, well-meaning, highly organized distance runners um, <laughs> who believe that running is a good thing and that if running is a good thing, it's good for everyone. And so they run everybody. And then we also have the Protestant work ethic in America where where if you're not doing well, it's because you're not working hard mm-hmm. enough, that we double down, double down on work, never on quality. and those things desensitize athletes from the things, the KPIs of success, you know, that 14 of our 18 events in Illinois are sprint-based, but but yet people still run all the time. I mean, you know, our girls' program still just runs laps. They just run laps. They never time a sprint in practice, ever. They've never asked to use my free lap. I hope they do someday, but it's been 15 years and they haven't yet. And so, if you get them really good at, at those sprint qualities, they are prepared to take the next jump, which is lactate work, capacity work. But there's one other thing that happens during that preseason, and that is kids start saying that the workout's the best part of their day. And you can't undervalue that. I mean, in, in chemistry, I used to tell my class on day one, this is going to be your favorite class, and I'm going to be your favorite teacher. And a lot of them went home with that expectation. Four days later at curriculum night, parents would say, hey, this is my son's favorite class. I'm like, we haven't even done chemistry yet. <laughs> but already they were thinking like, and then it made me try to live up to those things I promised. And I do my track program the same way. 
So once again, if I get the best athletes out, if I out-athlete my competition, and then they love what they're doing more than my competition, I have a really good chance of winning. You know, that's that's a good point you bring up, because I think that might be one of the most debated things of all this is real life is hard. It, and it is like life is not easy. And there and honestly, the amount like you, you're never going to get to a certain place in life unless there's usually some sort of painful stimulus. You're in a valley and then you have to overcome it. But at the same time, I look at speed itself. And maybe this is one of the reasons speed is interesting, is that it's almost a product of joy and you know what I'm saying? Like, it is a product of joy. All the things that are joyful in life, like sunshine, laughing with your friends as you're, you know, like, even like, I don't know, I just think about like doing a lap. With, I know you to do laps, but do a social lap, getting ready for practice, joking around with my buddies before in the sunshine. Like, dude, like that to me is like readiness to be high output because there's the joy in it. So, it's almost as if maybe it's a compartmentalized a little bit you know, we're there. I, I don't know. I think that there is certain, you know, even having a hand in the strength and conditioning community, I see inroads there, maybe more so, but it's like speed is maybe its own thing in that realm. I'm curious what you think about that. Speed is very unique. And I think it is a joyful thing. And I, I think we almost have to screw it up to make it bad. You're talking about joyful sunshine and stuff. My favorite memories of high school track uh, had nothing to do with our workouts, which were absolutely horrible. <laughs> I, I, I remember laying on a 75-degree blue sky day on our high jump pit, like after practice, and thinking, I wish I was a high jumper. Then I could just jump a little bit and then lay on the pit in the sunshine. But the beautiful thing about Feed the Cats program is there's so much rest and recovery that you have those moments that you can laugh and talk to each other and not dread what's coming up three minutes later. Now, obviously, we do hard things too, but those things are built on that, as you were saying earlier, that foundation of speed and explosiveness and love and joy. If, if we build hard things on a foundation of love and joy, yeah. you know, I, I think about marriage. I mean, you better love your wife a great deal to be able to put up with the pain that's going to come the pain and suffering. But with that love, you you deal with it pretty well. But if you are just in an arranged marriage where there's not love, I don't think you go through that crap very well. And that's, that's the same idea here. And I think that's why people are adopting Feed the Cats mm -hmm. to the classroom and to lacrosse and to yes. football and all those things, because they have found that not only do the kids' life improved, I mean, this is a huge thing, is that when we go to practice and your team is enthusiastically loving and looking forward to a workout, you no longer have to be an, a jerk. I was, was going to say asshole, but <laughs> you don't have to be a jerk. You know, you don't have to push those kids for high effort through misery. And when that happens, you go home a happier guy, which is good for your family. It's, it's good for you. And I think it makes you a better coach because I've always said the best teams inspire their coach. Well, how do you inspire your coach if you're miserable and you don't feel like practicing? It's not going to be an inspirational thing. So with that inspiration, the coach becomes better and creates an even better practice environment. And I call that your endless feedback loop, where it's just win, win, win. And that's not the traditional model. 
Yeah. I think like no matter what way you frame, I'm sure you could even find a way to debate that, but I think you can't get away from a base of I'm here because I love you, you know, and that is the base. And maybe it's a tough, maybe you're a tough love person. That's okay. You know, like, but that is still the base. And I see that as the joy. The more I've been coaching, the more I just see good coaches who get it. Like they purposefully and intentfully will infuse joy and laughter or, or something related to that into the program. Even if they're, they're, they have a lot of hard workouts, they still will find a way to do that. And it makes sense that if it does make sense to me, if your love reservoir is high enough, yeah, coach, I'll do that for you. Okay. You know, like, mm-hmm. and just, yeah, it's, it's, it's philosophical. I think the system's always been as, I would imagine it's always been as philosophical as it is something that's, you know, X's and O's and workouts too. Yeah. And that's why that, that, that inspires me. I, I, I tell people I, I'm not re- religious, but I, I go and talk like an evangelical preacher <laughs> at a tent revival. And it's because, holy cow, kids get one chance and coaches get one chance. And there's, it doesn't have to be as bad as it usually is. So yeah, it, it is philosophical. And I, I think that's uh, what stirs my blood at this old age. Yeah. Yeah. You got a lot of energy. It's almost like some uh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders vibes, but the, uh, you know, uh, but the track version at the energy levels. <laughs> I, I, it's funny you say, I used to say on the Bernie Sanders of track and field that, that what I say is a hundred percent right. And I should be president, but I'll never get the votes. So yeah. that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we, we just keep talking. Maybe if we switch to a ranked voting system that maybe you could get a few more. So. Oh, that's, that's a whole new podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Right let's, we'll talk about that on a, a different one. Okay. So anyways, um, so rank, yeah, I'm like, man, we're a long way from rank recording published, but so it was always, okay. So it was always the forties. So that, that was it. Like, obviously, you, I mean, you can't sit there in time of fly 10 with your stopwatch. No, so no. it was, I mean, did you have like a fast, like 150? Because I always kind of felt like, you know, if all I got is my watch, I could do a fast 150 and get pretty close. You know, I mean, was there any sort of anything else that was timed we, on the longer end or? Once in a while, we would do two meter flies. Guys would run in 10 meters. I'd have somebody like drop in a hand and I'd be up in the bleachers and I'd time a fly hundred. We like to do those on really windy days with the fly and the wind. You know, like I remember I had a great sprinter one year run a 10 low, you know, in, in the fly 100. And that's an exciting time. I don't care how much wind, how much run in. That's an exciting time. And I think kids felt fast, which I, I know you really believe in. The idea of feeling fast. Mm-hmm is really, really important. That's why we don't run with parachutes. That's why we don't push things. We don't pull things. I'm not saying that that stuff doesn't work. I'm just saying that my stuff works without that. That yeah. feeling fast is a really good thing. Yeah, like I said, it's like the base. And then, you know, if you had logistics and sleds, sure. Like, you know, like, let's do it. But it seems like, look look at here's everything you can do with just the base of this this basic thing without fancy bells and whistles mm-hmm. and a very powerful, supportive, motivating environment. Right. So when you did get Brower, well, actually, let me ask you this. Like, did you, when you switched to feed the cat style, I mean, it was a pretty hard cut. Like, did you completely, like tempo was totally out the window, right? Like eight by 200, 12 by, like that was gone completely. Or what did you do for speed endurance early on? Like outside of 40s, what were you guys doing? It was not as clean of a break. Like anything else, things evolve. I mean, like yeah. literally things I was doing two years ago, we're doing things slightly different now. And that, that's, that's an interesting thing to think about. In Illinois, we have some terrible weather. On a terrible weather day, 
back then I felt like I still had to practice. Now I don't feel like that. <laughs> we we love a four-day work week now. So I'll just call practice off for sprinters on a terrible day. But we used to go out no matter how bad the weather. And what I'd say is, okay, no warm-up, everybody on the goal line. And we would run to football conditioning test. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> That's going to be the highlight for this podcast. There'll be the oh, little clip God. at the, the beginning. <laughs> that, that, that would be the excerpt that, that, that everybody's like, see? Okay. So we, we would do a hundred yard run like everybody on the goal line and on every minute we would do another hundred and i told them i was going to blow a whistle at the 15 second mark and we want to be in the end zone before 15 seconds that's like a 61 second quarter pace so it was 20 minutes 20 hundreds once again people like i can't do this we would my kids were instructed to clap for that guy as he had to leave the premises, which is kind of shameful, but kind of a weird uh, mind trick that we did to kids that weren't tough enough to finish. And so obviously that's tempo. That's like the definition of tempo. And I did it mainly to get in and out in 20 minutes because I was miserable with the weather and didn't want to show it. So I would walk out like I was tough and we'd do 20 and 20 and we'd go home and I'd go home saying that sucked. We don't do that anymore. We, I think we stopped doing that about five years ago. Interesting story. Somebody oh, somebody on YouTube, some whack job, uh, took a deep dive into Feed the Cats, whether or not it's a good program or not. That's one of the things. He says, yeah, the guy says he doesn't do tempo, but he does this workout where he does 20 hundreds. Well, he had gotten a hold of a clinic thing that I'd done for 10 years ago. He said, furthermore, he hasn't produced a good girl sprinter in the last 10 years at Plainfield North. I'm like, that's because I don't coach girls, you idiot. So maybe before people want to disprove Feed the Cats, I'm probably the most accessible coach in the world. And they could call me and ask me questions before they did a, but anyway, it's kind of funny. So anyway, the closest thing we do to tempo now, and, and I'm admitting this, which is hard to do because I want to say we do no tempo, but usually about a week before our first lactate workout, we do like six half laps on our 178 meter track. And I said, look like you're sprinting, but don't sprint. <laughs> that's tempo. Don't you? Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> I know that's, te- I just don't say the T word. I don't say the T word. That's a, that's so a this title of this like, podcast. Don't say the T word. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is like totally confessional feed the cat stuff. Um, and basically, all we're trying to do is just add a little capacity. I know that's tempo, but you know, I, I found that, like Charlie Francis, I always say that Charlie was hyperbolic as hell because you don't move the needle by being. I always make fun of Stu McMillan. You know, it depends. It depends. That's his favorite two words. It depends. And he's right. He's a super smart guy. It does depend. But if I'm coaching coaches, they're they're really doing things poorly. And I say it depends all the time. I'm not moving the needle. So sometimes I say no tempo. When in actuality, we did tempo one time last year. You did it one time. I mean, it's, it is, I will say it's, it's like when you create a base, there needs to be certain fundamental principles. And it's just easier when you have fun. And, you know, as you progress, like, and you move along, okay, you, you, you start to get a feeling of what's okay to add in and, and then how to message that to the group. I think the messaging, and I, you know, I wanted to get into that. I had written that on my notes somewhere about 
something you said i was gonna say with the speed gun i forget oh the 40 like even the 40 being like uh that's a message like that's a a a way of communicating and i don't even know where i was going with the tempo thing i guess it's just how would you how do you frame speed endurance what do you how do you uh message that but maybe i'll just go to this question i'm getting confused sorry um okay (laughs) so yeah, with with that, I, I just I did find it really interesting that the forty is like it's like language. Like I understand this. This is the forty. Even my neighborhood kids that are like eleven. Like if I'm doing, I've put free lap on my sidewalk fairly routinely, and you know, I sometimes I'm the crazy, you know, almost forty year old neighbor who's doing fly tens in his sidewalk, and the kids will come out and do it, and just because it's fun and they want to keep doing it, they're like lining up these 11, 12, 13 year old, and like they're running like their socks because their shoes are too, their old clog hopper shoes are too slow, and it's just fun. But then they're like, oh, what can I do my 40? What's my 40? Because, you know, they're in football and they just everyone wants yeah. to know. So it's it's um it's like almost like the more meaning. And I know like you know, that the idea of something being inherently meaningful, I picked that up from Rafe Kelly and you know, his work from John Verveke. And like it's almost like part of this all is just selecting things that are meaningful for the athlete. It goes beyond exactly what the prescription was and all these X's and O's. So I just found that really interesting. And then you said something about the speed gun, too. I was going to ask you about that with the meaning and like how. Like if that's, you know, do you find that more meaningful than a sprint time, that, that kind of thing? Now, we, we don't use the speed gun. You know, Chris Corfist has, and he really likes it. And I think the kids kind of like the idea of a radar mm-hmm. or, you know, like they associate. <laughs> so all we do is we run, because I'm an old chemistry teacher, I'm really good at at, at, at conversions. So if, if, if we run 10 meter fly or on Monday, we did 20 yard competition flies, any type of fly. Within minutes, within 30 seconds, I can punch in my calculator and five miles per hour. So, you know, the 40-yard dash, connection with football. And now somebody asked me the other day if I invented the mile-per-hour craze. And absolutely not. It was all GPS with football that really created the miles-per-hour craze. But what I did is I brought it to track and field training. And, you know, I was the guy. There's actually some coaches that that took my ideas and created t-shirts, 20 mile an hour club, 21. But that requires like a whole storage room full of boxes. And so what I did is I spent $400 and bought 1,200 speed bands, 20 mile an hour, 21, 22, and 23. Marcellus is the only 24 I've ever had in practice. He's 24.3. Uh, last year, I had three guys run ran 23, and they were all staters. So... 23 is elite for high school. Now, if you're a girls coach, just subtract three miles. So 23 is elite for boys. 20 is elite for high school girls. 20 is kind of entry-level sprinter high school. 17 is kind of entry-level girls high school. But those bands are so meaningful. The guys that run 23 miles an hour were all four bands, four colors, and they all have a slogan on it, like speed kills, mm-hmm. no speed limit, feed the cats, PN track, you know, like, and so we have those. And then something that a feed the cats football coach came up with. Now he wasn't the first guy. He didn't come up with the physics idea of momentum, but what he did do is realize that we want to value big guys that can run fast too. So he came up, he called it truck stick. All it is is momentum. You change pounds the weight of the player to kilograms so if you have a 220 pound offensive tackle that's 100 kilograms and then you take his miles per hour and punch that into google and it'll give you meters per second 
you take kilograms times meters per second. And if you're a science person, that gives you kilograms seconds per meter, which is Newton's. So what he found was that he was undefeated first 10 games this year in football, that his best players, his three or four best big football players had truck sticks in the 800s, 800 Newtons, Mm. medium level 700s, lowest level 600s. And so he gives bands to the Greyhounds or fast guys that run 20 or 21 or big guys that run 20 or 21. You can win both bands and you can run the truck stick award, which is dog tags. Oh, cool. Silver, bronze, or bronze, silver, gold. And each one of them has a uh, a slogan on it. And just for fun, I took Tristan Wirfs, a fantastic offensive tackle for the Bucks, and I estimated his miles per hour and his weight. Well, 800 is like an elite middle-of-the-road high school football player, like an offensive tackle that can really move. Tristan Wirfs' truck stick, his momentum is over 1,400. So you kind of get the idea of how speed combined with size really affects the game of football. Well, I think that we should be doing the th- same thing for throwers, that we should we should have two sets of rankings, two sets of awards, one pure speed, the other one is momentum. And by doing that, we really address the fact that we want all kids to get faster. And I think it goes right back to the connection with the 40-yard dash in football, that momentum is important, miles per hour is important. And those are things that I, I didn't start doing miles per hour to, I think, three or four years ago. But we evolved into better messaging, better inspirational stuff for our athletes. And this is the stuff that when I have inspired athletes that make me love track more than I've ever loved it, 42nd year, I love it more now than I've ever loved it. Those are things that inspired coaches do. They find better ways to coach their team goes right back to that endless feedback loop yeah i think if we took just maybe one fifth of the time we spend on all the training schemes and all that stuff and we just talked about messaging and how that messaging inspires athletes we would be in such a good place i, I just ever since i think my time at cal especially I'd, i was so blind to this when i was coaching at in NCAA division three for whatever reason and i think just spending time in a very elite envir- environment especially with swimmers and just seeing it's almost something you see it's like something you feel like the psychology and the motivation and that it's almost like a tribe where it's like you you got this color you got this color you got this color you know and and it's like oh and and you can't put it's hard to put a number on that motivation or inspiration that strikes in that young freshman sophomore and things like that it'd be cool too but i'm sure people want to see a number show me a number so i know i need to do this in my program but i don't i know if i was in charge of a high school track team i would absolutely have something like that you have to it's like uh you know, I know the in the weight weightlifting is a whole different story, but if I wanted my athletes to lift as much as possible, I would yes. have a record board. Like, why would you not? Yes. Like, you know, so you have to have something that is like status, you know. Measure what matters and reward what matters. My great friend John O'Malley talks about how people die for symbols. Yeah. Think about military. Think about medals and think people die for symbols. And then you think about the helmet stickers of like grown-ass men in college football, what they will do for a helmet sticker. They will do whatever you want them to. I mean, like they will literally 
tackle the goalpost if they can get a sticker from doing it. And so I think we need to use that stuff wisely. Obviously, we don't want them tackling goalposts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of making a great block or, or, or a hustle play or uh, a great whatever, I think we need to reward what matters. Yeah, I, I love that. I just, I just think that can't be understated. And that's such an important, if you look at the, just the, all the different things that contribute to success and the level of, I think partly it just almost takes you as the coach or instructor, putting yourself in the athlete's shoes and feeling like how cool it'd be to, oh, I, I got this, I got this band. Like you know, just, and just, I, I think the older that I get, especially I, I I still train I still train speed I train alone a lot <laughs> and I always just think about how good it is every time I have a chance to sprint with other people even to just play a game play ultimate frisbee with people and jump way higher than I typically do after you just you just understand just how much community in the mind and the inspiration and the motivation pushes everything up and I just think I just look at that as the base, like a base. And and so often we don't get to that. It's like, oh, well, you learned everything else. So why don't you learn some stuff about the sports psychology now or something? It's like, no, this is like base level stuff. And I just think it's so cool how you do the wristbands. That's funny because I actually forgotten about like that. And I'm like, oh, it's so cool. That's that's something. That's yeah, such I a, love it. Tony, tell me a little bit. I had Joel Reinhardt and Andrew Cormier on a while ago talking about how they adapted Feed the Cats into field sports so like soccer and lacrosse. and. I know you've been really busy doing a lot of work in the field sport world. And obviously, this isn't just a track show. This is human performance, speed, power, all that stuff. So you know, now that we're an hour in, after all the, the formalities of an hour, tell me a little bit about your um, just experience moving Feed the Cats into team sport. Well, it's a very general and open-ended question, but maybe just yeah. some solid principles that you have found when moving this into the team sport space. Yeah. Uh- Andrew and Joel, we did a, a cool podcast on soccer. It was something that I never pictured myself ever doing. I refused to even watch soccer, but I can still stay in my lane of performance and I think add cool stuff. And of course, Joel is at Stanford now uh, with Stanford football, and uh, he, he, he's a rock star. You know, I've uh, last two days I've talked with Villanova and Johns Hopkins, the cross. You know, I spent three days down at Arizona State working with Tim McCormick in the cross. Princeton now feeds the Tigers. Johns Hopkins feeds the Jays. You know, I had a three and a half hour meeting with Penn lacrosse. Um, and then, and, you know, of course, there's hundreds of Feed the Cats football schools as well. So, so these are the things. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on Feed the Cats in field sports, but th- these are the major things. First of all, I talk about how we are all tribal genetically. We joined a tribe for security and to prolong our life long enough to pass on our genes. And solo living 40,000 years ago uh, wasn't very smart. So we have the DNA of wanting to be in a tribe that does not serve us well politically. It doesn't serve us well, in my opinion, religiously. Probably get in trouble for that. But I believe that tradition is also a tribe that we find security in doing stuff the same way everybody's always done it, the way everybody else, or at least the we, we find security in the majority. So Feed the Cats will never be the majority, ever. Yeah, we are like the Bernie Sanders of the political world. We are just a small cult-like group that you know want to make things really good for kids, and we want to perform highly. And we have absolutely you know said to hell with tradition. 
One of the things when we do that is let the games be the hardest thing we do. For the 400 meters, we let the 400 be the hardest thing we do. My team never runs more than never runs a lap in practice. We never more run ever more than 200 meters in practice. I'm talking about sprinters. And yes, that's 400 guys too. Our 400 guys never run more than a 200. We let the 400 be the hardest thing we do, and we're still good at it. We believe in speed year-round. In other words, we never want to drift from performance. Zach DeChant is a rock star of the SNC World TCU baseball, and he literally never drifts from a state of speed and performance. And that's that's unique because we used to just pile on the aerobic volume for months in order to build this fictional base that we can train on and to increase our capacity to train. And what he says is we'll never drift. Actually, he goes two weeks to ramp into speed. And when I say, oh, I don't do that, he's like, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> like He didn't even like the ramp it. You know, like, tell me more. I'm like, well, what in the hell are athletes doing that they can't sprint on day one? What, what's wrong with them? Have they like sat in a chair for six months? <laughs> hell, they're athletes. They, they should never be unsprintable. Somebody told me yesterday on, online, they said, yeah, you can't, you can't sprint with the bigs more than 10 to 20 yards because they'll blow, <laughs> they'll, they'll blow their hammies. I'm like, what in the heck? I mean, you mean there's an athlete out there that can't sprint yeah. because they're going to blow their hammy? And I'm just incredulous. So it's a year-round commitment to speed. Uh, it's a year-round commitment to the three, two, three-letter words that we've already touched on, that winning, that we wouldn't do this crap if it wasn't, if it didn't produce wins. So it's win, and then there's joy. Two, three-letter words. Now, you could say that joy creates winning, and it does. And winning creates joy, which it does. But we play the game to win. No way would I be out evangelizing this stuff if it did not work? And maybe it's because only the people who have found that it worked get back to me, but it's 100% of the people, the testimonials that I get daily. It's like, it changed my life as a coach. It changed my team. We went from one and eight to eight and one this year. And all we did was prioritize speed. We have a wave action in practice where we don't try to go hard every day. We go hard, and then we have a fundamental teaching-type day where we back off some so that we can go hard the next day. It's kind of like having three games a week. Even if only one of them is a real game, we have three game-like performance practices or games. And then the other three days are kind of like pregames, where we talk more, we do less, and we never burn the stake because the next day is so important. That was not my experience in football and basketball growing up. We went hard every damn day. That's what we did. And so obviously that's a huge change. And I think one of the key things that first slide I give if I'm talking to a lacrosse outfit or a football outfit is that I, I need to convince you of two things. That one, speed is the number one part of athleticism. I've never seen a slow athlete be called, man, is he athletic or, boy, he's an elite athlete. He's just really slow. No, speed is the number one KPI of athleticism. 
And number two, speed is trainable. It's almost like 99% of weight room centric people believe that strength is, you can train strength, but they think you can't train speed or it's, the time is not worth it. And what I say, oh, and they also say the speed is genetic and strength is built. They're 100% wrong. People are genetically strong. I was born genetically weak. I was, I was born tall and skinny. And when I was 15 years old, I weighed 142 pounds, even though I was 6'2". 6'2", 142. And I, and I played quarterback and didn't last a season. So strength is revealed in the weight room, but you can improve that strength no matter who you are. Strong guys can get stronger. Weak guys can get stronger. The exact same thing happens with speed. Is it speed is genetic? Of course it is. There are the most elite sprinters in the world were elite before they ever met their first great coach. For sure. I mean, Marcellus Moore, in August, I think it was like three weeks after I first like met him at a summer camp, he won AAU for 14-year-olds running 10.82 as a 14-year-old. And then six months later, he ran 10.40 for me as a 14-year-old. I mean, he had not met me yet, and he was already the freakiest guy I'd ever coached, ever. But it doesn't matter. We can get him faster, and we can get a slow, fat kid faster. So just like we can improve strength in the weight room, we can improve speed. And that should not be a hard sell for sports coaches. It is. They recruit speed like it's genetic talent, and then they just ignore it or turn them over to a weight room guy and let him ignore it. So those are those are the big things. And then I think we can get into sprint capacity and speed endurance, which I think are also really important. Like how in the hell can you play a 60-minute game when all you do is like five-second sprints? And I got good ideas on that too. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's where I'll follow up because I think the people would say, I actually personally spend very little time on social media outside of posting things. I'm like a post and run type person. <laughs> but I occasionally see people's like, oh, when you do more conditioning or when you do less conditioning, that's always going to be the fight, right? And so I'm just curious what coaches who, for this podcast, you know, we don't have anyone else to debate this, but for this podcast, coaches who have adapted, team sport coaches who have adapted the Feed the Cat system, which I'm assuming, I, I like how Joel Reinhardt put it, like basically practice is your conditioning, like small set of games, use practice, high speed as your conditioning, and then run some fly tens, basically. I, that was kind of what I took from that. And then rank it, you know, make that like the big rankable thing. And so that's what I would assume, that's what I would take a Feed the Cats kind of system. To me, that's what that strikes me as. So I'm just curious, is that one, is that a pretty accurate representation? And then two, I'm curious too, what these coaches are saying in terms of, you know, oh, fourth quarter and did we, you know, endurance and all that. So anyways, your take and what you're hearing from people who have implemented that type of system. Almost every coach will say, I love all this stuff. I love your ideas about speed, and, and we are going to make every kid in our program, for example, Princeton, the average kid got over one mile an hour faster on their lacrosse team. And they only had three guys that could run 20 miles an hour when they started the program. By the time the season started, they had 17 at 20 miles an hour. And they had a couple at 22. So, I mean, they totally changed their athleticism. We're talking lacrosse kids literally never sprint in their upbringing. It sounds crazy, but they never run at full speed one time during their entire upbringing. 
but yet they're division one athletes. So what coaches say is, I love all this stuff, but we have to play a 60 minute game, game one. How are we going to do that? And I said, well, you're not going to be in mid season shape. You're not going to be in tournament shape in game one, but you're going to be healthy, athletic, and your kids are going to love it. That will go further than you think because we're willing to suffer through hard times in the fourth quarter when we love the sport that we're playing and we even love practice. And I say, let the sport train the sport. So if you say, well, certain guys have large, I mean, they have to run like four miles in a lacrosse game. Well, your practices should reflect game demands. I don't think it has to be the entire game demand, but there has to be game-like situations. And then we have to be patient with the season training the season. That's hard for coaches, as you know, because we want it all right now. But if we work on nothing but endurance and capacity in the three weeks leading up to the first game, we're injured, we're diminished, we're miserable. I would rather be as Harry Mara, which, by the way, Harry Mara called me the other day, blew my mind. Uh, Harry Mara, for those of you that don't know, was the famous uh, Hall of Fame coach, a coach, uh, uh, Ashton Eaton. And uh, he, he had gotten word that I used with a slide that says, I'd rather be 80% in shape and 100% healthy than the other way around. It's a deep statement. But like he said to me, he says, that pretty much says it all, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm like, Harry, you're a genius. I mean, I love it. That's the way we want to approach the first game of the cross, football, basketball, that we don't want to be 100% in shape because what we have to trade off is way too large. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We want the season to train the season. And then I tell him this story. Steph Curry runs around three miles in a basketball game. Remember when I talk about intuitive versus counterintuitive? And if you divide his miles by his minutes, 34, he runs at about a 13-minute mile pace. Now, intuitively, you would say he needs to go out and run like 13 miles in about 39 minutes every day to prepare for the demands of the game. That's a joke. I mean, I could tell that story to any coach and they say, no, he needs to like sprint and jump and he needs to do like basketball stuff. Yes. And then so off the basketball court, let's sprint fast, lift heavy, jump high and far and learn to bounce. And then in the sport, let's recreate basketball like capacity. So what does he do? He runs, shoots a a corner ball. Runs the other side, shoots a corner ball, top the key, back to the other top the key, corner, corner. He takes 10 shots from five spots on both sides of the court, if you can picture that, running up and down. Probably takes him 90 seconds. I don't know. And somebody said, well, that's a great conditioner. I said, no, no, it's not. That's basketball. That's basketball. He is recreating basketball-like stuff. He's even shooting. So it's not like a suicide or a killer or some type of, you know, like one of the miserable, torturous things that basketball coaches have created for end of the practice, mental toughness stuff. He is recreating basketball-like stuff. And I'm not so sure he's not doing twice as much as he should. Maybe he wants to do half of that, rest two minutes and do another half. But that's how we create basketball-like capacity. We don't do it by running miles. So when I, I think when I tell that story, we all. We are all learners from storytelling. 
I think they start, I can see the wheels start to turn in their head of how you would recreate something like that in the cross, which makes sense to me. Yeah. I, the, the big thing with all of it, like the using the game itself, and like Joel had talked about small-sided games is, I think you know, part of that, like like the it, it, the more we learn about the human body and all the silos we can, you know, train, it's almost like we have to take each of those silos and just go as far as we can with them. But at some point, if you do that, you're just going to start to, you're going to trade something off. If nothing else, you're going to trade an athlete's potential sleep. Like you could be taking a nap instead of doing all this, you know, and, and I do think there is an element of control we have to give up with some of these things. Oh. It's like, there's this human nature to, oh, if this isn't my realm, I want to control this and this and this. And Jay Schrader had said something that I really like. This is where him and, him and you would have like maybe an epic debate. I don't, I don't really know Jay, but like he didn't actually train sprinting in his system because to him, you have to get in a sport with all the emotion of sport to be like sport. And you've captured that with the timing and all that, you know, you, yeah. but I yeah. think to say, oh, just go out and do sprints and focus on this technique and you're not like timing it. Well, that's not, you're, you're, you're emotionally taking away a big part of what's actually happening. And so... I think with conditioning, like what's the, yeah, you could go run those three miles at 13 minute pace, but just on the mental and emotional level, it is a hundred percent different than, I, I mean, even like having young kids myself, it's so, it's so much fun playing like tag or and even just like, you know, we walk around the neighborhood and my daughter would just go off and start running because she just can't stop moving. Then my son, who is a few years younger, would kind of run with her and be like, I'm tired. Like, I don't, all right, cool. Just stay, walk with me. And, but then if you play tag with him. Like, he doesn't get tired. It's like his brain Ever. is latched onto the game. And even just coaching youth soccer, like, these kids are just, like, going around. They, they don't get tired, to be honest. Like, at, at the first game, yeah, kind of. But, like, after that, like, they're pretty much good. And, and they're, not, they're not, like, I don't even think they really know, like, I, I think kids almost have to get taught to, hey, this is a hard workout. This is tiring. This is X, Y, Z. Once you disconnect it from that game. Because it's a game and you just go. And so... I, I always feel like, and I know for me personally, I will get in better shape playing sports by far than if it's like, hey, just go out and run all these, you know, 200s. I mean, that's why I ran a better 400 when I was in high school. Like, and I'm I'm a hard worker. Like, I'm the type of person, I was the hustle basketball player too. I was like, I'll make up for not being as good by just running harder and playing harder defense and all that stuff. So, I think relative to other people, I probably ran and jumped even harder because I just had to to even stay in the game. But I just think when people talk about conditioning so much, and again, I'll say I, I even in my strength and conditioning experience, I was never tasked with really taking conditioning to a high level for a team. Like it wasn't like, hey, Joel, you got to get heart rates and all this stuff. I, I never had to do that. So I'm just a disclaimer. But it was interesting because I will say at Cal, the men's tennis team did almost zero conditioning. The women's team, I didn't work with the women's team, but they did a ton. And honestly, I don't, I never saw the men's team get tired in the third set. Like I never saw no. anyone just like sitting there with their knees and like, oh, this is so hard. <laughs> like it just never seemed to matter. Like the coach was like, ah, we just, we occasionally, maybe once every few weeks, we'll run some 17 half court sprints and that's it. But I was never called in to do that. And I'd never felt like it ever mattered. And that was just my experience, but I was just long-winded. I just feel like the game is so, it's, it's almost like you have to relinquish the fact that a human being playing a game with intention is such a powerful stimuli in and of itself. Like you have to be, regardless of yep. what you think about extra conditioning, you have to be there first. Or, or a track meet. Yeah. Track meet's yeah. the same way. You're talking about fourth quarter. I think uh, football coaches that get outscored in the fourth quarter, they always say, we got to get tougher, we're soft, more conditioning. And they forget the, about the two fumbles 
or or the uh, three missed tackles. You know, they always see it as a conditioning thing. And then I love the fact you brought Jay Schrader as being like buttoned heads. Jay Schrader was by far a number one influence, even though I never met him, in my X Factor ideas. That basically he was doing exercises, like funky exercises. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, but Dan Fichter spent a lot of time with Jay. And that's where he got a lot of his stuff, which means Corfus probably got a lot of his stuff (laughs) from Fichter. But I developed that X fact. What was the name of the the great player from Arizona State? Oh, yeah. uh, Archuleta. Archuleta. Yeah. yeah. Remember the old grainy video? Oh that yeah. Was around. It was like freak of training. Years ago. Oh, yeah. Yes, and he was like jumping off of boxes and sticking landings, and and bench pressing and catching the bar, and everything that they were doing just seemed like it just made sense to me, you know, and and so. I became more experimenting. Uh, I experimented. I had my eyes open to all kinds of things like that. And I think that the Venn diagram between he and I, I don't think they were doing that stuff tired. I think they recovered in order to have high outputs. And so that's the way, that's why we do X Factor today. Yeah, I think that, I do think the explosive stuff that Jay did, like they did the long ISOs as recovery, but that was, I think, in a separate oh, yeah. workout. Like that's that's not Feed the Cats, the long ISOs. That's a different conversation. But the explosive stuff was like the Jay's big thing was actually, Jay, like lo- I believe, love being like the highest emotion that drives that ship. And like that full intention, he talks about the pipes, the you know physio- physiological, intellectual, uh, spirit, emotion being all on for that explosive. I'm sure for the ISOs too, but like when they would do the drops or whatever it was. And so I do think there was a lot of, yeah, like that core being that core base of the training moving forward. And I, I think I heard somewhere that Adam Archuleta did like hundreds. I, again, those stories just get blown up, but like hundreds of drops a day preparing for his combine day or something. So, okay. I was just thinking back to the the team sport and yeah. I, I need to probably check the time here too. I know we've like I said, I was like, yeah, 60 minutes of formality to talk about a whole another hour of team sport. <laughs> I, we could easily do that. Okay, so but let me um maybe I'll I'll round down with uh just this is because I I do think yeah that 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 just core of the team sport and yeah like maybe being okay with being just a little bit out of shape that first I think it maybe comes down to that are you okay with being slightly out of shape that first game you know throw my hands up a little bit for to trade off for all the other in- game intensive things or having more left throughout the season I guess you know there's probably a lot of ways you could go with it but to me that maybe it comes down to that one question a little bit versus have to have because I feel like maybe this is almost a different way you could take it. When you almost try to have it all, it's like you have so many plates oh. you can hold in your hand, you know? And when you try to hold like four plates at once, <laughs> you're kind of juggling between them. It's almost like you have to take a couple plates and just hold them well. Or if you're in the circus, they're seeing them spinning the plates. It's like, how many plates can you spin? Maybe you can only spin three plates. Like, and But yet we're trying to spin seven because we're trying to maintain all these qualities. When it... I think just that minimalism, like you talk about, and, and maybe starting there too, you know, regardless of what you want to come in with the debate, just saying, hey, let's just start with essentialism. What if we just started there? And that strikes me as something that you could add with that too. Yeah, I think essentialism, the book Essentialism did not change my life like it did a lot of people, but it reaffirmed my life. I learned that I was an essentialist, and I think that's a good thing. Eric Corum, I, I have a slide where I quote Eric Corum and he said that every coach should be uncomfortable with how little they do in the first week. A brilliant statement, mm. right? And it's brilliant because of the word uncomfortable, because it is addressing our innermost 
primal urges to do more. Mm. I mean, coaches are coaches because we outworked everybody as players because we were not the pure cat. Pure cats don't become coaches. We were the come early, stay late, half step slow type of dudes and work got us to where we are. And then we parlayed that work into coaching. And then we, we don't really love to coach cats, but we love to coach those hustle guys. And so all of those things go into the idea that we're going to be uncomfortable if we are letting guys go home with gas in their tank. You know, the saying, everybody needs to stop one rep short. Even in writing, you, you should stop, not when you're exhausted, but when you're on fire. Yeah, or just you walk, yeah. Yes, you walk away while you're on fire, which means you look forward to your next writing session. This is giving me goosebumps because it makes mm-hmm. me want to write. You look forward to your next writing session. And when you start writing again, you're in the same flow you left it. So if we can walk out of practice on fire, we can come back the next day looking forward to it. And we start the next practice in flow, in on fire. Now, the only thing I changed with Eric Corum was I don't think you should be uncomfortable only in the first week. I think you should be uncomfortable with how little you do the entire season. You need to keep fighting back those primal urges that we are going to outwork everybody. And we would rather, (laughs) I say this about football coaches, they would rather lose than get outworked. And football coaches, they almost come back at me and then they think about it and they said, okay, you're right. I I would rather lose and, and then get outworked. I don't want people calling me soft. I'm like, okay, that is a problem that we need to manage. You have a huge problem with wanting to outwork everybody with the whole idea of hard and soft with football coaches. It's huge. They're obsessed with hard and obsessed with soft. It's, it's a bizarre thing. But, but we need to really work at understanding, just like we all have the disease of more. We want more, more, more. But we have to understand that nobody lives on the mountaintop, you know, like that we have to appreciate the climb because you're never a 10. You're a 10 for a brief second. And then the next day you wake up and you're seven again. And so we have to constantly understand that we're great coaches because we're more, more, more people. But we have to understand our psychosis at the same time. And I think that gives us some balance and then maybe we're willing to let the games be the hardest thing we do and let the season train the season and keep our kids really healthy and fast throughout that season. Yeah. I think in in coaching, it's so easy to, one is the tendency to want to control. And I think that if anything, it's like nature, like to try to control nature, to try to like, I think in like the idea of Buddhism, it's like trying to push back the ocean. You're sitting there trying to like, you know, trying to over control when you, you can't, like there's something that's to this that is actually beyond your ability to control. And realizing that, and I, I had something else there. Maybe that kind of summed it up. But I was gonna say too. It's like I think sometimes we, and I know I do this. And I was telling you before this, we've been pressed record. Is I my old books and training programs, the old vertical ignition program was so there was so much stuff in it that was the vertical jump book that's 130 pages. Like that book could have been 25 pages. And I think a lot of it was initially. It's like you start to validate yourself by all this extra stuff, and it's like I think. It's kind of like even, you know, you could get into life itself. A lot of life is 
detaching from what you thought your ego or your ego thought you were, you know, and being willing to detach from that and saying, okay, I can, I can, I've done this, but I can, I can transcend this. I can put this and I can move forward. I'm sure you did that in 2000, right? I mean, <laughs> probably more than just about any coach, maybe in history, like having done that. I'm sure that was a big, you know, big step for you. It's a work in progress, obviously. You know, I, um, I'm reading Brad Stolberg's book right now, Groundedness, and it just it's blowing me away. Like every page, I'm like highlighting stuff. And, you know, he, he, obviously being grounded means you're present. And we all know that present is good, but to detach from your past and your future is what you have to do to be present. Mm. And so really it's detachment. And, you know, I, I've, I've learned so much about, you know, like track is the ultimate goal sport because it's, it's measured. When Marcellus would come to me and say, okay, you know, my family and I were talking about my goals for this year, my goals to run a 10.15 and blah, blah, blah. And I said, that's good. But I would rather you just go on a mission and be like, what's that? I said, well, I just want you to be the happiest, healthiest sprinter mm-hmm. in the world. And I think that things will work out for you then. And it's not only that is the mission, but then you surrender to the results, which is very Buddhist. When you surrender to the results, your results improve. It's, it's bizarre yes. stuff that the ultimate, I don't know if you read Pressfield's Gates of Fire about the Battle of Thermopylae. It's, it's a hell of a book. They made a movie out of it, kind mm-hmm. of a cartoony, the 300, you know, uh, the Greek Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I've, yeah, seen, yeah. I've seen 300, of course, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you know, and, and then the guy says, uh, uh, we'll blacken the sky with our arrows. Mm-hmm. And the Greeks said, then we'll fight you in the dark. And because they had surrendered to basically a suicide mission, their results went sky high. Mm-hmm. That, that it was not their incredible urge to win or to survive that caused them to fight like nobody's ever fought. It was their surrender. And once again, counterintuitive, yeah. their surrender to the fact that they're probably going to die. This is a suicide mission, but that made their results better. And I think we stop fighting ourselves. We're able to put our energy into performance when we accept whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to go out and run really fast and have a great time. And I think when those things go right and there's people cheering for you and everything, I just think that that results take care of themselves. But like you said, coaches want control. I mean, even track coaches would like to Mm -hmm. do a chess game. (laughs) Maybe after the meet, after the meet, they're like, all right, we're going to finish the chess game. (laughs) That's right. You know, like football coaches, they love the chess match, but they're wanting to control things. and. Sometimes giving up control will actually improve your results. No, oh, 100%. I'm glad you mentioned that because before I know we're, we're running a little bit long and I, I'm so glad <laughs> you mentioned that because that was one that might have been like the first question I honestly wrote down. And I kind of bumped it to the end, but it was um, I'm reaching I'm reading a book called The Future of the Body. It's by a guy named Michael Murphy. It's kind of like talking where we're headed as human species, given all these things in history. And yeah, what you said, it's like in Buddhism, it's non-attainment. In Christianity, it's grace. It's like a surrender and then a gift. <laughs> and, and it's like, I, I, we have such a hard time with the surrender. Like we, and, and, but to realize, no, if you surrender, like that's where the, and, and you have to do it not in a way that, oh, well, I know I'm good at like, you know, it's like, oh, I know if I give money to charity, I'll get more, you know, whatever. Like it has to be a true, you know, surrender it to that. And then, because that's where the goal setting, I've seen this happen so often where 
like you'll have a goal setting meeting with athletes and they throw out like just all insane. Oh, I'm going to run, you know, 46 in the 400. I'm going to run, yeah. you know, and it's all just crazy. And I don't know why it's like, it's like you're in a group and it's like, you're like, feel like you need to say something insane. <laughs> like, I can't remember how many insane goals I heard of my teammates when I was in college. I, was like, I can't believe you're, I mean, and, and no one ever, it was, there was a joke at um one of Cal's, um, the Cal assistant coach <laughs> and swimming had said, he's like, it, they had a team goal meeting and he's like man if we do even half of these we're going to win conference by like 500 <laughs> points or something and, and and i've just seen this myself where it's like i go into work i'm like oh i want to hit this i'm gonna hit this and you know what sometimes i do but i find that when you say that and you don't do it then you get this like dopamine like oomph. and that's right oh. I, I was going to ask you just more about that i love what you said with marcellus uh, i just think that's because so, we do need to have goals but like in process goals versus outcome right and like yeah, just curious for you to expand on that a little bit more. I, I think goals are, I, I think naturally, you know, like I don't ever have goals anymore as a coach. If somebody says, do you want to win the conference this year? I'm like, hell yeah. You know, uh, do you do you want to run under 320 in the 4x4? Four four? Yeah, we do. They're just not goals. Because I, I feel with goals, um, you know, a form of the word, the goalpost, the goalpost is constantly moved, either mm-hmm. up or yeah. back. Like once you reach that goal, you realize the goalpost is actually a little bit further, or you know you, you work most of the season and the goalpost is still so far away, you know you'll never get there. So you move the goalpost. So obviously, we are constantly just shooting for things you know that that we think are attainable. But I, I'm not saying it's easy. But when we give up that control, when we say uh, we're on a mission. I, I think the mission is never ending. That when I really accepted, I, I think the first time I read that burn your goals, go on a mission, surrender to the results was in the book, Chop Wood, Carry Water, which is oh, a really cool book. I was going to mention that saying too, uh, with, uh, with everything. Yep. Yeah, so, yep. And so that's become a lot of people think, you know, that saying is mine now because I say it a lot, but no, I was Josh Metcalf. And, and I think that, that, if we do that, it's really hard to do. We become consistently headed in the direction. I call it inertia. Consistently headed in a straight line at a constant speed unless acted upon by an outside force. And so that inertia towards really good stuff, I think, just is a continuance. And so now, as a guy that's coached for 42 years and feeling younger and happier and loving of coaching more than I ever have, at the age of 42, I know I'm on to something. And it's not just retiring from teaching. I'm on to something because I, I don't even like to think about when my mission is over. You know, like when I'm no longer on that mission to produce the best track team I can produce. And I don't want that mission to be over. Maybe when that mission's over, I get a new mission of trying to help other coaches, which I kind of do already, create a similar mindset, a mission oriented mindset. And you are totally right. It's not just Buddhist and Christianity either. It is Stoicism. It's mm-hmm. it's like smart philosophers from the 13th century. And and uh, Stolberg does a great job in his book of bringing all those things up. And I tell you, success will drive you crazy, just like failure. Mm-hmm. You know, unless yeah. unless you're grounded. And to get grounded, you have to just you have to surrender to a lot of things, which. Once again, I'm a work in progress. I still make tons of mistakes, but but those things are really meaningful 
for me right now. And I wish I would at time when I had four little kids and coaching three sports to read more of that kind of stuff. It's just hard. Like in your situation, I mean, it's hard to find time to read the stuff you need to read, but maybe it's even more important when you're young. Yeah. It's, I think we all get to where we need to be and you know, maybe it's life for a book, you know, and, and at some point, with that too, I think about, I've been thinking a lot about like a child, like, like how does a child see the world? I've heard Tommy John, who's been on the show, has talked about training like a child. It's like, what does that mean exactly? And one of the things that has been hitting me is it is a pure present mindedness. You have no expectations. Mm. And I'm like, that to me is the number one thing is actually having no expectations. And I, I will say, it's like, yes, you should have, like, I do think that there is intention. Like I intend I inwardly intend to win. Like when I was a high jumper, I inwardly, I intended to jump seven feet, but I wasn't like, that was just always kind of the end. Like, I hope I jump seven feet, but it wasn't, I don't know. I, I didn't like, I found the harder I identify with goals later, like little training goals that mm. actually never worked out very well. It, even, you know, there's an interesting story too. Caleb Dressel, who is like swimming beast, like he, in NCAAs, he swam 17, six in the 50 free, which would be like someone running, like not honestly, it'd be like someone running nine, six in college in the hundred that's that's or better. Like that's how good that was. And he said, there was an interview where he said that number, like the day before or the day of it just popped in his head, like the time. And, and I mean, and he blew away the old record. It was like not 17, nine or 18, one. And the time just popped in his head. And he, it was almost like a gift. You know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't something that he, like, manufactured and really, like, rode all year. I'm going to swim this. It's just like, here's a gift at the end. And I don't, it's just so interesting how that stuff works to me. You know what I'm saying? But it works in everything. Yeah. Did you ever know the guy that tried too hard to get a girlfriend? There's no no way he was ever going to get a girlfriend. Yeah. You know, the people who want to be happy in the worst way, Yeah. Um, they'll never be happy. You know, ever. I mean, it's like. It's a, the, those paradoxes, you know, and and so once again, you just kind of have to do the stuff and stay present, and then surrender to the result, and then your results will improve. I always thought that, like back in my my younger days, that when I wasn't looking for a girlfriend, is when one appeared, you know, <laughs> and and the same thing with happiness, the same thing with uh, incredible breakthroughs in training. Yeah, you just kept plugging away and enjoy what you're doing. And then you're like, holy crap, I can't believe I just did that. And I think that's a really common thing with athletes. But if you're trying too hard to get there, there's the paradox. You just, yeah, I think you're better off doing it and surrendering. Uh, dude, I, I think I've told this story on the podcast, but I, when I was in high school, I always wanted to dunk in a game. Like that was just my yeah. thing because honestly, I wasn't that good. I wasn't sitting there draining threes. Like I just wanted to show everyone that I was athletic it was self-validating and I just wanted to dunk in a game. And I always tried so hard. I thought about it so much too. It was a very like thinking, trying. Yeah. And then yeah. one one game, I remember warming up and I wasn't even jumping very high. And I already had thought in warm-ups, I'm probably not going to dunk this game, which is kind of a stupid thing if you actually want to win the game. You want to win, you want to put the ball in the hoop, not think if you're trying to dunk. But anyways, our team was winning. There was no pressure. And I stole the inbound pass from the point guard. And I don't remember anything. And then I was hanging on the rim. And then I had dunked it and that was it. And it was just like this gift, like this gift. I had surrendered actually the fact of even dunking that game. And then I don't remember anything. And then there I am hanging from the rim. Like it was just like this. I was like, man, like that is, yeah, that's that, that just surrender that let life take care of it. It was just crazy. So that stuck with me for 
a long time. I and, and I, I realized too that just how it helps me see how my mind like will screw me up so often too, just trying so much and just finding situations where you can just let let things happen. So And what, what do coaches preach? Trying hard. Yeah. Oh yeah. We we preach it like it's a religion. That the harder you try, the better you do. And once again, we're counterintuitive here and being all weird about things, but you can be really good. I think I've read where people that hit four home runs in a game never dreamed that they would ever hit. It was never a goal. Mm. They just made contact and the ball sailed, you know, and then they hit another one, you know, and I I think, you know, that just proves that when you're present, but yet you're not, you know, thinking about the future or the past, you're able to focus better. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, we could, uh, that could be a whole podcast too on goal setting. And I'm still not 100% sure where I sit on outcome goals. I do still believe in them, but it's like, well, the core, maybe just like everything else just needs to be the process. So, yep. All right, Tony. So I know you got, you got your team's got an X Factor workout coming up. I, I just want to ask you one more question here to close this out. So let's see. I had so many questions we didn't get to, but this is a funny question. So, all right. So if there's um someone came in, you know, the state, you know, Illinois state regulators come in and say for track, Tony, we're going to force you to add to your training one of the following things. You must include this in your weekly training. Tony, you have to put in weightlifting in Feed the Cats. Tony, Tony, you have to put in one uh, tempo workout every week or two, six 200s or something. Uh, it's reasonable. It's not like stupid. It's not yep. like 20, but yep. you know, six, six or eight. Or you have to do a 20 meet, minute meeting prior to every practice day <laughs> you have to pick one of those three so weightlifting tempo or a meeting which do you twist your arm have to put in your program so i'll approach this kind of like on house hunters well they're like okay this out no way so uh the 20 minute meeting is an absolute non-starter <laughs> uh, you know we, we have a soft start to every practice i go in try to make contact i talk to a couple kids and say let's go that 20 minute meeting i'm just not a boy scout leader or nothing like that. We we get in it and get out of it. I believe that I would never accept five to seven two hundreds as tempo work. I might do five to seven hundreds once <laughs> or twice a year. I, I could fit that in. And then I, I get pigeonholed a lot of times being anti-lifting. And once again, I'm being hyperbolic, like Charlie Francis would be, or anybody that really works to move the needle. And that is, there is such a strong, the weight room is where champions are built. The weight room is the birth of all athleticism. Be strong or go home, blah, blah, blah. There's, it is so overhyped that I have to talk moderation towards the weight room, which comes off as, as being anti-strength. And I'm not. There's I could absolutely fit in a 25-minute lift after every practice. I, I could be mandated to go in the weight room for 25 minutes after every practice, especially if I was only dealing with 15 guys instead of 40. 40 just sucks. But, but I could definitely do that. And what I would look for is a stimulus effect, not a no pain, no gain, not, say, not a outwork the competition type of mantra. Instead, we would do three sets of something that I heard was valuable. Even though I knew know that there's not a single lift in the weight room that directly corresponds to speed, piss people off. But but if they say, well, cleans directly, no, it doesn't. 
Can't slow people do cleans good? Well, yeah, but, okay, so it does not drag. So if you're good at cleans, it doesn't mean you're fast. Boo-Shaxnader says, the strongest are seldom the fastest. Epic boo. The strongest are seldom the fastest. But strength is still good. So we could go and do three sets of five on uh, three selected things and get in, get out, and come back without burning the steak, without today ruining tomorrow, and we would be just fine, if not even better, as a team. So so definitely I, I would do the weight stuff. Gotcha. Cool. I like how you started with definitely not meeting. <laughs> that's, that's the worst. <laughs> that's the worst. So yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. It's probably, you know, given the feed the cast, that's the one that definitely makes the most sense as well. Just apply it to because it's hard to apply that to tempo. It's like tempo doesn't kind of doesn't fit in that environment, you know, so no makes sense. Of course, if I said, hey, you could do CrossFit after that, then that doesn't fit in either. But reasonable weights. Yeah, makes sense in that framework. So well, right on. Well, hey, um, Tony, we covered a lot of stuff. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And, you know, I know you got an X Factor workout coming up. Any, but before we go, anything you got cooked up for that X Factor today that's um, you'll be doing? Yeah. I mean, usually I go in without a script, but I had a feeling like you might ask me this question. <laughs> and, and people are always wanting to know, what does it look like? Because I'm kind of vague. on. So today, what we're planning on doing, as our entry thing, all of our guys are going to go over wickets seven times, you know, like different ways, you know. Fist high, other fist high, eyes left, eyes right, maybe two hands high, you know, like two different types of wickets, full speed, six feet apart, uh, probably not actual hurdles, probably just cones or something laying on the ground or, or hurdles that are laying on the ground. So wickets, you know, we'll get out the uh, 14 pound med balls and do med ball throws as high as we can, maybe three sets of eight. We're going to get out the hurdles and do like hurdle, hurdle over and under type things. Uh, just hip stuff, low impact. I think we're going to measure three types of bounds. You know, we, we do like six bounds from a two-footed start. We do single-legged bounds, five of them measure, other leg, five of them measure, and maybe do a standing triple jump. You know, just once again, we're measuring, so guys are going to be real intentional. And then uh, I call them my bleacher drills. This is probably the fifth thing we'll do, where there's all kinds of things we can we can step off the top bleacher, stick the landing. We call them cat jumps. They're actually called altitude drops, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, we call them cat jumps because one time I threw a cat off the roof and he stuck the landing and then sprinted as fast as any cat I've ever seen in my life. And so that was, that was in 1964. That was kind of like the start of my Feed the Cats ideas, I think, half joking. But then, uh, then we can do some depth jumps. where that, That's where we land and jump over a hurdle. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, okay. or whatever, whatever the outcome is, but often a hurdle. Hurdle is a good one. Yeah. Okay. So we'll do some depth jumps. Oh, and we'll do some cat jumps. We're doing like a 180 or 360. We'll do different types of that. It's shocking, as you probably know, how many kids cannot stick a landing. Oh, yeah. It's like yeah. They fidget, can't, fidget all over the place or just take a step every time. They, they either collapse, they spring, or they fall forward, fall backward. Even stepping off a 12-inch bleacher, they still can't stick a landing. It's so weird. And the kids that can do it well, it looks so boring. It's like, why do we even do this? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, yeah. And so, and then there's other things we can do with these bleachers. Like we put one foot up on the bleacher and we just bounce on our down leg. We just do bounces. And, uh, 
And so then Thursday, when we do another X Factor workout, we won't do any of those things. We'll do five other things. And I probably won't think about it until I get there. Yeah. That's where that not like childlike almost effect, like not knowing what to expect. Like you're not allowing an expectation effect. Oh, we're going to do this today. You know, like that, that keeps the wonder in that day a little bit, you know? Yes. And then the the X, I say X stands for unknown, where literally I don't know what we're going to do when I walk in. But recently I thought, oh, you know what? What do we do on those days? We do exercises. So we can, we can say X stands for exercises as well. And you talk about, you know, like hit training. Hit training could actually be done on X Factor days if you allow for more recovery. Hmm. If you separated like the weird exercises out. But of course, there are some things, as you know, that, that I probably wouldn't like, you know, like, you know, tippy toeing through speed ladders. I'd probably say, see that and say, no, nah, we'll never do that. So, so there is a criteria that we use. We have to have a reasonable expectation, not scientific proof, no research papers backing it up, but a reasonable expectation that what we're doing may be valuable. And if it's not, it's so low dose, it's not going to hurt us. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know it was not scripted. I'm sure we could have another, I, cause I non-script my warmups constantly like my warm-ups really? are oh yeah all my warm-ups uh, in person at least i can't do that on online training but all my warm-ups in person are always non-scripted i i almost never ever write them out in fact well, I don't that, even means, remember the last that means time I we're, that means that means you're living in the present yes that's the part of the reason i think i it just i just felt good to do it i was like this is and it's funny because I, I i will say this is the process i think about the process of which i even write down the workout it's not like, what's the mental process? What makes it better when you sit there and write it before? And now again, I, I, this isn't necessarily like a progressed speed training thing, or uh, this is something that's more game-like in nature in some respects. But, uh, and again, all, all credit to, I, I mean, I, I'm a believer in periodization, but I'm not crazy with it. Like I'll write four weeks at a time and there is always a, there's, there's a thought process. There's a sensitization, sensitization, resensitization, that all that's in mind. However, the warm-up I view as a basketball game almost. Why is a basketball game so great? Part of the reason it's not scripted. And if it was scripted, honestly, I probably wouldn't be juiced up to dunk at the end of it, you know, like I usually am. And so I just think about that for the warm-up. I, I play by the same thought rules. And the more I started doing that, at first it was just maybe a slight bit of disorganization where I just had to warm up a team and I didn't have anything written out. So I just started making up stuff. I was like, that turned out pretty well. I'm just going to keep going with that. And you think about the thought process, what makes it so much better when you're sitting there before the workout writing this down? Then when something comes to you through intuition as it's going along, and that's kind of where I have gone with that portion of things. So it's kind of two, there's that part of my training, and then there's the written. It's kind of like, I mean, you have the written, the, the speed stuff. So it's kind of didactic, yeah. I guess, is maybe the word. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. So you understand. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Oh, very cool. Well, hey, have fun with that workout. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a blast. And it was great talking to you, Tony. Thank you so much for coming back on. Again, it's been too long, and I'm glad we could reconnect here and get you back on the show thanks for tuning in appreciate you being here if you want to help us out you can leave us a rating or review on spotify itunes whatever you're listening to this show on would definitely appreciate that and we'll see you next week